okay, so I uh, titled this talk um, Watching Beyond Worldview, uh, partly because when I had to come up with the title, I wasn't really sure what I was going to talk about. So in the meantime, I've come up with this. Um, and in a way that is not typical for me, I'm going to kind of read it, um, but I, instead of giving slides, but I'm hoping that we'll have time for questions at the end so we can interact on it. Um, also, I'm sorry, I've developed a cough, so I will try not to cough in your ear too much. Um, okay, so the way I've come to think about movies and art is heavily influenced by having a foot in both the religious press and the mainstream press. It started with the religious press for me. So after years of intermittent freelancing with them and a bunch of other outlets, I was appointed to the post as chief film critic at Christianity Today in March 2013, and I held that until two months ago when I joined Box. So I've seen how the faith-based entertainment market has undergone a very unprecedented shift of late. My appointment turns out in retrospect to have happened in the last few calm moments before the explosion that catapulted a zillion movies toward what studios and publicists call the faith audience. I had a ringside seat to the explosion of interest in the faith-based market. Sometimes I've been dragged into the ring itself and taken a few punches from internet commenters and random Twitter people, uh, though critics develop a pretty thick skin when it comes to anonymous rock hurlers. Because I'm an evangelical, because I love evangelicals, I get pretty twitchy when I hear the term faith-based. But I know basically what they mean. Churchgoers, usually evangelical Protestants, although sometimes Catholics show up in the, in the group as well. They're usually well off enough to afford a night at the movies. They're interested in inspirational biblical adaptations and movies about a pretty narrow range of topics as far as studio heads are concerned. Family, sports, the culture wars. They're good and genial neighbors. They are highly critical of any film containing sexuality or bad language, though violence is more allowed. And if you don't believe me, just go see Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which is definitely for that audience. Studios had frantically been trying to corner that market since 2004. That year, The Passion of the Christ, which was fully financed by Mel Gibson himself, made more money than anyone ever dreamed possible, mostly because of block ticket sales to churches. The film is still, to this day, the highest grossing R-rated film of all time in the US. There's a long history of sword and sandal flicks before that, of course, and occasional apocalyptic movies like A Thief in the Night. The Billy Graham Evangelical Association made a number of solid films a few decades ago, most of which were shown in churches and did very well, some of which are actually quite good. But 2004 signaled something new, and Hollywood sat up straighter. Then there was this kind of quiet period during which a few films succeeded with the faith audience. Facing the Giants did well in 2006. The Kirk Cameron vehicle Fireproof did well in 2008, Courageous in 2011, all of which are indie films that came from the same church-backed production company. Other co movies weren't made explicitly for the faith audience, but drew sizable crowds of mostly evangelical Christians. Movies like the Narnia films, The Blind Side in 2009, the Book of Eli in 2010, and Soul Surfer in 2011. Around this time, publicity firms popped up to market every conceivable film with a vaguely inspirational or self-sacrificing hook directly to pastors and to parishioners, from the Avengers to the Monuments Men. Uh, during my time at CT, I would receive these packets from publicists that would include like Bible studies to go with literally every film that you could just sort of dream up some kind of Bible study around. But something happened, 
And all at once, a wave of specific faith releases started to crest right about the time I joined Christianity today. By early 2014, it had grown into a tsunami. It included Son of God that year in February, the blockbuster God's Not Dead and Noah in March, Heaven is for Real in April, Mom's Night Out in May, Persecuted in July, The Song and Believe Me in September, The Left Behind remake that stars Nicolas Cage in October, which is a very bad movie. And if you want to watch a Left Behind remake, watch the Kirk Cameron one. It's better. Um, Saving Christmas in November and Exodus Gods and Kings in December. As all this was happening, I got calls from reporters asking me to comment on the year of the Bible film about every week. At Christianity Today, we covered all kinds of films, not just those being directly marketed at evangelicals. But you might think this boom was a boon for me as chief film critic at the flagship evangelical magazine in the United States. And you're right in this sense. Journalism these days is driven by web traffic, and ours definitely spiked when we ran a review of any of these films. We wrote a scathing review of Left Behind and a mostly positive review of Noah, and in 2014, those were two of the top 10 most read articles at the magazine all year. But I have a very hard time with faith-based films, which I've shared quite publicly in many places. I'm glad filmmakers are trying to explore their faith in cinematic form, but I find most of the results mediocre at best, sometimes actively offensive. And because as a critic, my responsibility is first to the reader, that really matters to me. The God's Not Dead phenomenon is a prime example. I hesitate to even start talking about it here because I am liable to never stop. Um, but before the release of its sequel earlier this year, I wrote a piece for the mainstream site Thrillist about my theological problems with the films. In a few weeks, it was shared nearly 150,000 times, so I don't think I'm alone in feeling this. So let's just leave it here. Movies shape the imaginations of those who watch them, to be sure, but with a lot of faith-based films, there's an additional implication, one that's not unrelated to box office dollars, that if you don't like the film, something is wrong with you, and it might be your salvation. That's a lose-lose situation, but it's definitely framed that way on purpose. I get a lot of grateful emails from people who agree with this and feel very alone, but I also receive a lot of blowback about this from Christians. The most common complaint, which is hardly unique to Christians, is that I'm overthinking things, or I'm too snobbish to appreciate films that aren't art house masterpieces. Frequently, there's a straw man argument that pops up that says you shouldn't hold a Christian film to the same standard as any other film because it's hard to make a movie and there's not a lot of money for it. That's a cop-out. I see dozens of very low-budget first features from independent filmmakers every year, some of which are successful and some of which are not, but it's a bad craftsman who blames his tools. A great movie can come from anywhere and from any budget. The real issue is almost always a total lack of work on writing and at times an inability to empathize with anyone who doesn't fit the perfect category of good and evil, of perfect Christian and bad non-Christian. That's not art, it's propaganda, no matter who's making it. But the good news is that during my time at CT, I got about as much positive feedback as negative in the aggregate. Yet the challenges for a Christian writing about culture for a Christian audience, I find, can still be greater than I experienced writing for a non-Christian audience. Part of the problem is that for years, even for decades, cultural engagement has been a watchword among Christians, generally, and evangelicals particularly. It has been used as a substitute for, or antidote to, the sort of cultural isolation that evangelicals and other Christians often embraced in the early and mid-20th century. The thing that Francis Schaeffer managed to shake loose a bit, though I think his perspective was still laden with theological problems that have hampered Christians in the arts for decades. But that aside, 
I found that engaging with culture for a lot of people basically means talking about talking about culture and talking in vagaries about beauty and truth and goodness. When things get right down to brass tacks, though, everyone goes back to the Lord of the Rings and the Matrix and the Tree of Life and maybe Harry Potter <laughs> if we're feeling a little risky. Things get much trickier when we pull out real, actual cultural artifacts. It's one thing to talk about watching movies and a whole different and more complex thing to try and talk about specific movies. I think that's because Christians tend to treat actual cultural artifacts in the way they sometimes treat the Bible, chiefly as proof texts from which we can draw principles or truths for application. Though we love the Bible, we evangelicals in particular have often treated verses as if they stand alone, forgetting that the story in which they appear speaks just as much as the verses themselves. That is to say that form speaks just as much as content. Christians have leaned lazily into the idea that products of culture exist mainly as objects, object lessons to be turned into truths when we write about them. The goal is to figure out how they do or don't line up with our beliefs. In the Christian journal Mockingbird, writing about this phenomenon, um, the critic Will McDavid wrote that, quote, culture, even in its currently secular period, does a good job of listening to the voices which testify to that truth. We listen, but often we're already comparing their words with what we already know to be the right answers. But we tend to crave a Christian take on everything, a personal angle, and we want it fast and easy, and the prefabbed complex of ideas provides that for us. I wrote about this phenomenon a couple of years ago right after I saw David Fincher's film Gone Girl. I usually only get one chance to see a movie before I write about it. So while I watch, I'm scribbling notes and trying to absorb the movie and write a pre-draft of the review before I walk out. I ask myself a lot of questions. What will my thesis and my argument be? What themes seem important? What will my readers find useful and interesting? My goal in writing about a film is not just to give some kind of consumer reports up, thumbs up or down, some kind of aesthetic pronouncement from on high, but instead to take the film on its own terms and unpack it giving something to the reader that will expand their viewing of the film and prompt them to draw conclusions of their own. Of course, the answer to these questions when you're writing about a movie like Gone Girl is immediate. It leaps off the screen when your audience is largely Christian and heavily evangelical, and it holds for pretty much every movie. You can almost always write exactly the same review if you want. This film is about the eternal battle between good and evil and the wickedness that dwells in the hearts of men. That's a really nice thesis to be able to grab because the Bible, of course, says many things about good and evil and sin and judgment. And that means I'll find something theological to say about the film and we'll all be happy and satisfied that we learned a good lesson. But the thing is this, Gone Girl is not interested in that question. That would be the easy way out. The movie is about something intensely metaphysical and also concrete, but in it, sin is a matter of fact, not its obsession. Some movies are about good and evil, of course, but Gone Girl is about something else. So while it says some good things about good and evil, even wearing my Christianity Today hat, I could write about that, it would be at the cost of some giant important things the movie is trying to say. I actually maintain that movie is about the housing crisis uh, in 2007, 2008. If I were to try to shoehorn Gone Girl or any movie into that framework, I'd be treating the movie disrespectfully not as a movie, but as a teaching tool. And I'd be treating my reader disrespectfully too. I'd be assuming that he or she can't grasp other potentially more complex ways of thinking about it. I'd be assuming the reader needs me to give a clearly Christian take on the movie 
rather than something that takes the movie into account for what it is and what it tells us and how it tells us that. Which in the case of films isn't just story or narrative, which is a word we love, but also movie history and cinematography and lighting and editing and acting. It's actually really hard to do that kind of writing. And I'll be honest, in a journalistic environment where success is pretty much measured by click-throughs on your headlines, the great challenge and temptation is to write something that you know will get Facebook shares. As a Christian critic, part of my conviction is that I must not just look for Christian truths in movies and TV, but also treat them as movies and TV, treat their creators as intelligent world builders with particular contexts and aesthetic visions, and treat readers as the intelligent, thoughtful Christians they are. Christians of all people believe they're embedded in a cosmic story. They ought to be the ones who get why we focus on how a comedy works or what's going on in the background of a shot or why a filmmaker might be drawing on the past or whatever. If we think and believe that art is designed to work both on the level of form and of content, then we can't possibly just be satisfied to get its message, evaluate it or accept it or reject it, and then move on to the next one. But for a long time, I've been willing to gamble that Christians, even American Christians, and American evangelicals are interested in TV and movies that go way beyond whatever Blancmange is being served up for them specifically. So my superiors uh, at CT were always happy to trust my judgment and let me go cover independent and studio films, both domestic and foreign. Uh, last year, I got to go to film festivals like Sundance in Berlin and True False and talk to filmmakers all the time. What I find when I do that is that religion is a deep and resurging preoccupation in filmmaking at home and abroad. This is actually true of both TV and film. TV is one of the most religiously obsessed places in America today, with shows like The Leftovers and The Americans and Fargo and Rectify and The Good Wife and many more. Movies are loaded, too, with explorations of belief and doubt. Stories set in cults are really huge right now, and that is not by accident. My job is to probe those connections and help unpack what they mean for my audience, for Christians and for non-Christians alike, partly because I'm not really sure Christians get what religious exploration looks like a lot of the time on film. A faith-based film is often about the Christian team winning the day over the non-Christian team. A religious film is about trying to express and explore the questions that belong to religion. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? Do we need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from and how? These are the topics that preoccupy me. They're the topics I wrote about at Christianity Today and implicitly the ones I'm still writing about at Vox. There's certainly a widespread conflation both in Hollywood and in the popular media of Christian or religious film with movies made for the faith-based market. I maintain the Venn diagram between religious movies and faith-based movies does overlap but it has wide segments that remain really separate from one another. The conflation seems to me to be harming the critical discourse around films. It's actually harming the faith-based market too. Sometimes films I'd characterize as religious in nature are being marketed at the faith-based market segment, and many people who consider themselves religious are struggling to critically assess what shows up in the faith-based category. So it's worth drawing those distinctions. Faith-based is usually a synonym for safe a sort of insider folk art that is produced and consumed by its own, similar in some ways to the CCM, the contemporary Christian music that many people my age grew up listening to exclusively. There are films with Christian themes that don't get marketed to the faith-based segment because they're not safe and they don't offer simple answers. 
but they can still make a ton of money when they hit it big. I cannot emphasize how much money they can make. As I said, The Passion of the Christ is still, by a long shot, the highest grossing R-rated film of all time, 12 years later, largely because of ticket sales to churches. God's Not Dead shot for $2 million, which is considered a low-budget film, and made $60 million back, which is any independent filmmaker would give their IT to get that kind of return on their film. Faith-based movies, not movies with Christian or not movies with Christian themes, just films being marketed directly to that audience, have earned over $445 million at the US box office in the last three years. And a lot of them are shot for low budgets. By contrast, religious movies are more of a genre. They explore or provoke in the viewer an exploration of religious questions, the questions that all religions or belief systems explore, from Christianity to animism to new atheism. All eventually explore and attempt to answer, how do we get here? How will we end? Do we have souls? Who saves us? What is the nature of evil? What is the nature of goodness? From where do we draw those definitions? To what end ought we live our lives? What is sin? How are we redeemed? Should we be? Given this, there's a sense in which we might think of all movies as religious, of course. There's a whole lot that is common between religious contemplation and the cinema, for instance. The only place left in our culture where everyone is supposed to just shut up and pay attention in single direction for a couple of hours. But some movies are more preoccupied with these questions. Calvary from just a couple years ago is one of the most religious films I've ever seen, but it definitely wasn't marketed to a faith audience. Tree of Life remains an obvious example. I'd like to think that a film that explores those questions without answering them, or one that forces its viewers into exploring them without giving them answers ahead of time, might also qualify as a religious film, just as the fiction of Graham Greene or Evil Lenoir, for instance, is wildly religious, but doesn't have a Sunday school sense of completion we're used to in particularly religious work. As a side note, some of the best and most daring religious filmmaking is coming from the Muslim world right now. A film that's essentially a sermon isn't a film at all, though it might be a perfectly fine sermon. As a critic, I'm interested in movies that aspire to be art, which is to say that they invite the viewer into them to bring themselves to the work in order to complete it. There are many of these. The work of the religious critic is to ferret them out and write about them. Which leads to a recent upside of my job. I had a reputation outside of CT circles, enough to eventually get me hired into a staff writer position at a big publication. It turned out that every critic, whether or not they buy into traditional religion, is aware of just how religious their medium has become. And also most of them feel really, really ill-equipped to address it. Occasionally some attempt it. Almost all of those were raised in church and have ditched it since. But they harbor an interest in and affection for their former tribe. Even when they want to hear from someone who still goes to church, oh, even they want to hear from someone who still goes to church and still believes all this stuff, and they want to hear them talk about the movies and TV shows where characters do that as well. So they call me. I've been interested to hear journalists at major mainstream outlets and J schools talk about how, from their observation, Christians have made assumptions that journalists and people of faith exist in totally separate and non-interlocking spheres. But that's precisely the opposite of the truth. And that squares with my own experience over the years. Christians assume that because they are underrepresented voices, they're unwelcome voices, and that they must approach the so-called mainstream media in a combative fashion. But I've actually been forcibly pulled into writing for mainstream publications by editors and journalists and critics who read Christianity Today and want the perspective we offered there in their own pages. 
which takes for granted that art matters and we ought to talk about it and also takes for granted that we don't have to be offended every time we're misrepresented. Christians have a wonderful perch from which to approach culture since we believe that God is the author of truth, that art is a way of understanding the world he built into humans at creation, and that we have nothing to fear in any environment that cultivates honest exploration of humanity from the margins. But still, it would be hard to explain how amazing the experience of discovering the need for religious critics in the mainstream has been to me and how very personal it's become. One of my best friends now has been one of the major figures in film criticism in this country for a long time. And he befriended me specifically because he'd read something from CT and felt like, though on paper we have basically nothing in common at all, we might see the world in a similar way and have similar questions about existence. Another friend is an editor-in-chief at a major film website and outspoken about his agnosticism. But while I was still freelancing, he would regularly ping me to write about religious themes without dictating the outcome and ask me to contribute to his book. A friend who's a critic at the Washington Post texts me with religious questions for her pieces on politics and superhero movies. I've had longer and richer conversations about belief and doubt with fellow critics while waiting in line at Sundance Film Festival, and the lines are very, very long, so there is lots and lots of time for that. Or at 3 a.m. in the morning for a press party in Columbia, Missouri, or interviewing a director at a bar, or sitting in a theater in Berlin waiting for a press screening to begin, then to be honest, I usually do in my real life among church people. There's something about movies and TV and the religion that's explored in them that changes the conversation. It gives us ground for talking and understanding one another. I left church a long time ago, several of them have said to me, but I don't know, I always think about going back. For an evangelical with a deep reform streak who's always struggled to figure out how to share my faith in a way that doesn't feel corny or absurd or offensive, this is, of course, pretty satisfying. Even more satisfying when my outspokenly atheist friends call me to write a piece because, as one said, I know what I think, but I'm not interested in what I think. I'm interested in what you think. Yet, I'm not saying all this to suggest there's anything particularly noteworthy about my actual work. What I am saying is that there's a yawning vacuum for journalists and critics who are interested in talking about religion and popular culture to both audiences that like God and audiences that don't like God. A lot of Christians have assumed that the only place for them to write about culture is Christian publications because others just won't get it, and that's not true. I think that until Christian colleges and universities are willing to actually listen to religious journalists working in the mainstream, which isn't something they've always been willing to do, the situation isn't going to change. But when it does, there's a huge gap for solid, generous, rigorous thinking informed by a religious perspective. And the more complicated the American religious landscape becomes, the more true this will be. But to turn to criticism for a moment, the form I care about the most, I have a few observations there as well. And to do that, I have to just back up and talk about what criticism is even for. Most people, if they stop to think about criticism, even really most critics, think of it as a little bit like a leech. At best, a serving, uh, serving as a finger-wagging consumer guide toward those of us who just want to go eat some popcorn and watch stuff blow up for a while. Critics are joyless snipers, fond of the obscure and the highbrow, who look down on the sorts of simple pleasures normal people enjoy. In his recent book, Better Living Through Criticism, the New York Times chief film critic A.O. Scott suggests that this is all wrong. He takes apart the idea that criticism and art are fundamentally opposed and doomed to a fractious relationship. His argument is that criticism and art don't merely need one another. They only exist because of each other. Quote, criticism, far from sapping the vitality of art, is instead what supplies its lifeblood. 
Criticism properly understood is not an enemy from which art must be defended, but rather another than the proper name for the defense, or sorry, another name, the proper name for the defense of art itself. He also puts it more bluntly, that the critic is a craftsman of sorts is obvious enough. I want to insist that the critic is also creator. Criticism isn't just art's friend. It doesn't just explain art. It is an art in its own right. Provoking people to question our competence, our intelligence, our very right to exist. That seems to be a big part of what it is to be a critic, Scott writes, knowing very well what he's talking about. He doesn't add this, but I can. If you are a Christian critic, you better prepare to have your eternal salvation questioned as well. But the critic's job isn't to placate or predict popular sentiment. It's to respond to art honestly and rigorously. Criticism as practiced by professional critics is really just something we all do and that we all can do. Encounter art like humans with brains and emotions, both when we encounter the things that other people create. That idea that our brains are as important a part of the art experience equation as our less rational feelings, reactions, preferences, and tastes flies in the face of an oft-leveled criticism against criticism, that it intellectualizes art, and so it takes the fun out of it. Doesn't interpreting art ruin the experience? Can't we just appreciate it for what it is? People frequently, frequently ask me, well, when you just watch a movie for fun, can you turn off the critical impulse? And I say, why would I want to do that? Um, but the presumption is it's like a thing that makes it worse somehow. Scott writes, this is an old and powerful, in some ways unanswerable argument against criticism, rooted in the idea that creative work should be taken on its own terms and that thought is the enemy of experience. It is indeed precisely the job of the critic to disagree, to refuse to look at anything simply as what it is, to insist on subjecting it to intellectual scrutiny. That is because, to come back to my first point, criticism is itself an art form, the form that contends against and makes space for other forms. In some sense, criticism is the er-art, but criticism is also about art. So, chicken and egg, does art come first or does criticism? Well, every work of art since the day after creation has been, in some degree, a response to what's come before. In fact, a work of art itself is a piece of criticism, as Scott puts it a struggle against an answer to its predecessors to be aesthetic norms and cultural purposes around it. So all works of art exist in some capacity as works of criticism. I think of it as another way. An artist's job is to pay extraordinarily close attention to the world around her, to nature, to beauty, to love, to politics, to the zeitgeist, and then articulate her experience to others through painting or dance or song or story or visual narrative. Art starts when someone attends to life and then responds to it as he experiences it. Some respond with pastoral poetry. Others dance about love. Still others make movies about power and oppression. An individual artist responds to whatever attracts and holds his attention. A great artist does so with an honesty that can come at great cost to the artist. What, att what attracts the critic's interest is art itself. We might say that criticism is always ekphrastic. I love that word. It is art about art, and also art about the critic, just as art has always something to say about its creator. Scott writes that the contradictory heart of the matter is that criticism is an art produced in reference to and therefore in conflict with other arts. 
He hypothesizes that from the moment the primal human activities of making pictures, telling stories, dancing, and producing organized patterns of sound separated themselves from magic or relig religious ritual, it became necessary to judge, to compare, and to interpret the results. The critics were the ones who appeared to have paid close enough attention to have something to say about how such things had been done and should be done. And so the critic's job is to closely attend to works of art and then articulate their experience in the form of a carefully constructed, skillfully written argument. This is my job as a teacher of criticism in the classroom. Uh, I say, first start from what you felt, then you must pin it down and explain it. Scott again says, argument is as essential to criticism as volume is to sculpture and pigment to painting, or gesture and stance to stage performance. But just as sculpture and painting are arts of the hand, and acting is an art of the body, criticism is above all an art, an art of the voice. Criticism is not a matter of technique reform so much as it is a matter of personality, of who you imagine is doing the talking. You can think of your favorite critic, whoever that is, a lot of people say Roger Ebert, what made Roger Ebert great was that you knew it was Roger Ebert writing this. Nobody else could write this review. You went to hear his idea and his voice articulating it. To use terms borrowed from Andy Crouch's wonderful book, Culture Making, criticism is at once an act of creation and of cultivation. That is, the critic creates some new work that has as its goal to cultivate what already exists, to make orderly rows of the wildly overgrown garden of cultural production. It may clear the weeds around an overlooked flower that's being crowded out of the sun. It may point out how several varieties of tomatoes are related to one another and how they differ from one another. It may pluck out the thistles and prune the bushes to give vitality to the better fruits. Criticism is really hard work, but it is important to the health of a culture. And to say that evangelicals have had a fraught relationship over the past century with entertainment and the arts is so widely observable as to be axiomatic. But change is afoot. Christian publishers now actively seek books on the arts. CCCU colleges, Christian colleges and universities are starting to build programs in the fine arts and media production under the leadership of trained, practicing, believing artists. Organizations and conferences have sprung up everywhere, on churches, on campuses, in communities that focus on encouraging the pursuit of beauty and shaping Christians' imaginations. There's even an active community of Christians seeking to make art that reflects their faith. Making art as a Christian is not as lonely as it once was. Along with this shift toward creation, many evangelicals have sensed a need to engage culture by writing about it. In hot pursuit of cultural engagement, we've turned out reams of articles, reviews, commentaries, and essays on entertainment and the arts. A careful observer might divide the lion's share of this writing among three categories. The first type, which frequently influences its readers in positive ways, is philosophical or theological reflection for the layman, intended to inspire readers to pursue and value beauty and creativity as a gift from God, a reflection of the Imago Dei. Often this focuses on encouraging the Christian reader to recover an appreciation of the arts and the Christian artist to make work that reflects God's glory. You can find this kind of writing in books like Madeline Langle's Walking on Water, Phil Riken's Art for God's Sake, and Mako Fujimoro's Refractions. They often focus on bringing beauty back to its transcendental companions, truth and goodness. Another form this takes involves using a work of art primarily as an object lesson designed to teach us something about our own spiritual lives. This often gets called criticism, but it's much, much closer to proof texting, as I said earlier. 
For instance, a writer might say, this television show is about the search for truth. Christians search for truth too. So from the show, we can learn something about how we ought to seek truth. Here, the television show is merely a conduit towards something that applies to us directly. At its best, this can serve as a devotional aid or a sermon illustration, but it has a darker side as well. Recall McDavid's observation that we, quote, crave a Christian take on everything, a personal angle, and we want it fast and easy, and a prefabbed complex of ideas provides that for us. Observations of this kind can stay shallow, and our understanding of the work of art can as well, all while we tell ourselves we're engaging with it. One final form, which is frequently considered criticism, probably because it defaults to a stance of criticizing, consists of extracting content from works of art, usually movies, and making lists of them, largely divorced from context. I call this the counting swear words tactic, which is employed by both the MPAA and a number of Christian outlets. Some of the content might be deemed offensive, warning signs are duly posted, here is nudity, here is violence, here is profanity. On other occasions, the content fits the political and religious ideology of the reviewer, and therefore the item in question is given the thumbs up. There may be plot summaries or brief historical overviews, and usually a statement of evaluation that's based largely or solely on those content issues. Christians have produced all of these in spades. I've probably written all three varieties myself. But what evangelicals have lacked on a broad scale is a vibrant culture of criticism. We know how to criticize. We know how to critique. But a true critical engagement with entertainment and the arts has been restricted to small pockets, and they take hits on all sides. We don't know what criticism is or what it's supposed to do. We don't read it. We don't support it. We don't produce it. And in many cases, we actively disparage it as harmful to our mandate to be creators. I'm kind of overstating the case, but really not too far at all. <laughs> An original version of some of what I'm saying today was written for Books and Culture, a publication that, as I was publishing for it, uh, I praise for raising a vibrant standard for criticism that stems from an evangelical perspective. But Books and Culture tragically recently announced that it's ceasing publication after decades for lack of funding. Publications like Image and Christianity Today have published and encouraged the development of critics for decades as part of their mission, but Image is in a perpetual state of financial crisis, and CT has been struggling to stay afloat for years now. In the past few years, upstarts like Christ in Pop Culture and Mockingbird and The Curator have worked hard to foster new and younger voices, but none of them can afford to pay writers much more than lunch money, if that. It's still difficult outside these sterling exceptions to find, for example, robust informed writing on the visual arts. In his 2008 book, God in the Gallery, my colleague at King's, the art historian Dan Seidel, noted this. Most Christian commentators rarely address modern art on its own terms within its own framework of critical evaluation, he wrote. Rather, those commentators produce theology, philosophy, apologetics, or politics that rely on and even require a superficial understanding of modern and contemporary art. They do not produce art criticism. Similarly, apart from the outliers, it's difficult to find a forum for Christians writing incisively from a theologically robust perspective about the best mainstream contemporary literature, about sentences and paragraphs, as well as plots and themes. And it's nearly impossible to locate writing on dance or theater informed by historic Christianity. Those that do exist are woefully underfunded, especially compared to their peers that deal in political engagement. For example, for evangelicals, this signals a deep-seated apathy, if not right antipathy, toward culture, despite the strides we've made. 
Though those three common forms of writing about cultural engagement are miles apart from one another, what's lacking in all three is the same thing. None of them require writers to engage in the actual work of criticism. None of them require writers to pay close attention to particular works and then articulate their particular experiences with those works. In the first, at its best, we get a general framework for engagement. In the second, we might understand ourselves better, but gain little to no understanding of the work itself and how it works as art. In the third, we lose perspective on the work altogether, fixating on elements without taking in the whole and suggesting there is only one correct way to respond. That last one can be poison. It is not just me. All the Christian film critics I know who have written for a Christian audience for any length of time have had their legitimacy, intellect, humanity, and indeed their eternal salvation openly questioned on dozens of occasions. Whether for praising a work with problematic content or refusing to praise shoddy work made by Christians largely for Christian audiences. We need to support those works by buying tickets and DVDs, the argument goes, and besides, it's hard to make a movie or write a book, so why can't we just kick back and enjoy it? Of course, this is just another version of the intellectualization accusation. It's even more rare to find openly evangelical voices writing criticism in the mainstream, a curious fact usually rationalized under the faulty idea that there's no room for writers with religious commitments in the mainstream media. But in fact, as I said, popular culture today is teeming with religious themes, characters, plots, and creators, and there's a vacuum for informed, winsome commentary aimed at a non-sectarian audience who's very interested in what this resurgence means. Most interesting, interestingly to me, nearly a half century after Hans Ruckmacher and his friend and popularizer Francis Schaeffer wrote pleadingly to Christians about the need to embrace and create art, the vast army of skillful Christian artists they envisioned who would work in the idioms of the day, in their words, hasn't materialized. That's not to say there aren't devout Christians making important art, not at all. But it is true that most evangelicals couldn't name more than a couple and tend to still cast their gaze backward to some mythical golden age, whether it's the Renaissance or the heyday of the Inklings. While some of the fault definitely lies with elements of Rookmacher and Schaefer's rhetoric, which is another topic for another day, or you can just take my classic kings, I'd argue passionately that our rejection of criticism as a legitimate mode of culture making, our failure to understand what it is and why it's important has a great deal to do with this. To follow Scott, criticism is the art that gives art it's the art that gives art its lifeblood. Through its form, criticism teaches readers how to look at, read, watch, and listen to art. It takes art seriously. It embraces and champions the undervalued. It mourns the missed opportunity of badly made work. Done well, it does not denigrate readers' taste or shame them or dictate their response. Rather, it gives them permission to have their own experience with a work of art. Criticism makes order from an unruly world, and it does does so through creating something new. Art criticism is a creative practice parallel to but not derivative of the art it addresses, Seidel writes. Criticism is the articulation of one person's response to a work or works of art, a song, a movie, a comic book, a painting. It is colored by that person's particularity, their upbringing, ethnicity, ideologies, gender, personality, life experiences, preferences, taste, and yes, religious commitments. Criticism starts from a fundamentally non-rational place, not irrational, but non-rational, from the gut, from the emotions, the intuitions experienced by every person. What turns feelings into criticism is what makes up the critic's work, to screw emotion to the sticking place, and then ask it why, and so what, and then write down the honest answer. This involves a considerable degree of self-reflection and honesty about one's own prejudices and perspectives, 
as well as a lot of hard work to develop a critical vocabulary, to learn to write and revise skillfully, and to expand one's horizons beyond the obvious. Critics must be readers, watchers, and observers before they're anything else. All these activities pursued in community would serve the church well. But until we take criticism seriously as an art form, the art that defends art in its particularities, until we support those who are already doing it, teaching it, and publishing it, until we're willing to invest the resources to develop budding critics, until we want to listen to what critics have to say, both in the church and outside of it, I fear that we Christians, and particularly evangelicals, will continue to be largely ineffective at making, understanding, and experiencing art. So the job of the Christian critic is messy and huge. We must help unpack and untie the wings of Christians who want to create. We need to create beautiful writing that takes art on its own terms, celebrates culture-making, works to straighten crooked paths, and finds truth wherever it lies. And where we can, we ought to take the seat at the table that's sitting open for us in a pluralistic society dying for a compassionate, winsome voice that fills a gap in a cultural conversation. We have to tip back a few pints with those who aren't like us and dig for truth wherever it lies. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.